from deep inside your audio device of choice. Looks like So, Elon Musk isn't uh, involved in quite enough new companies, new industries. There's always more when you're a genius. This from Reuters, ladies and gentlemen. U.S. lawmakers are asking regulators to investigate whether the makeup of the panel overseeing animal testing at Elon Musk's Brain chip startup, those words must have thrilled you. Neuralink contributed to botched and rushed experiments. Really? Him? U.S. House Representatives Earl Francis Blumenauer and Adam Schiff, both Democrats, have signed a draft letter to the Department of Agriculture requesting a probe into how Neuralink oversaw its experiments. If they actually did, lawmakers have shared the draft with peers to gather more signatures and plan to send it to the U.S. Department of Agriculture this week. The draft states they're responding to a May 4th story by Reuters, which revealed that Neuralink filled its oversight board with company employees who stand to benefit financially from the startup getting regulatory approval for its novel brain chip. Again, those words. Thrills? Thrills yet? The panel approved experiments that resulted in the unnecessary deaths and suffering of animals. That was what Reuters reported December 5th. Spokesperson for Blumenauer, the congressperson, said the USDA did not respond to an earlier request from lawmakers for a probe into Neuralink in the wake of that story. That's not enough to look into the thing? The deaths and suffering of animals? And this is, what, 2023? Congress has a significant interest in ensuring that all facilities using animals in research and testing, whether government-run universities or private companies, comply with the minimal standards of the Animal Welfare Act. That's what the draft letter says. This really won't surprise you. Musk and Neuralink representatives and spokespeople for the USDA and the agency's inspector general didn't respond to requests for comment. Usually these days, Musk responds to requests for comment with the poop emoji. Couldn't be bothered. Couldn't be bothered to hit the poop emoji. Neuralink has already been the subject of federal probes. Reuters reported that in December, that the uh, Department of Agriculture's Inspector General was investigating, at the request of a federal prosecutor, potential violations of the Animal Welfare Act, That governs how researchers treat and test certain types of animals. The probe has also been looking at the USDA's oversight of Neuralink. The inspector general and the USDA didn't respond to a request for comment. The Department of Transportation, let's get some more departments involved in all this, said in February it was investigating Neuralink over the movement of hazardous pathogens. An agency spokesman said this probe is continuing. No more details. USDA inspectors visited Neuralink's California and Texas facilities in January in response to Reuters reporting and queries by lawmakers. They found no issues, according to the news service Reuters. Neuralink has been trying to secure clearance to advance to human trials. Just relax. 
after a prior attempt was rejected last year by the Food and Drug Administration because of, say it with me now, safety concerns. Never enough musk love. Hello, welcome to the show. What you say? Hello, 
from New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And um, if you're not shocked enough by uh, what Elon is up to, try this. When neuropsychologist Bernard Sable put his new fake science paper detector to work, he was shocked by what it found. This is from Science Magazine. He screened some 5,000 papers, scientific papers. He estimates up to 34% of neuroscience papers published in 2020 were likely made up or plagiarized. In medicine, the figure was 24%, both numbers which he and his colleagues report in a preprint posted uh, this week are well above levels they calculated for 2010 and far larger than the 2% baseline estimated in a 2022 Publishers Group report. It's just too hard to believe at first, says Sable. He uh, works at Gerica University Magdeburg. He's editor-in-chief of Restorative Neurology and Neuroscience. It's as if, he says, somebody tells you 30% of what you eat is toxic. Unquote. His findings underscore what was widely suspected, says science. Journals are awash in a rising tide of scientific manuscripts from paper mills, secretive businesses that allow researchers to pad their publication records by paying for pa fake papers or undeserved authorship. Paper mills have made a fortune by basically attacking a system that has had no idea how to cope with this stuff. That's the comment of Dorothy Bishop, an Oxford psychologist who studies fraudulent publishing practices. An announcement early this month from the publisher Hindawi underlined the threat. It shut down four of its journals it found were, quote, heavily compromised, unquote, by articles from paper mills. The uh, tool that uh, Dr. Sable used to discover these um, possibly shocking facts relies on just two indicators, authors who use private non-institutional email addresses and those who list an affiliation with a hospital. It isn't a perfect solution because of a high false positive rate. Other developers of fake paper detectors who often reveal little about how their tools work contend with similar issues. Still, the detectors raise hopes for gaining an advantage over paper mills which churn out bogus manuscripts containing text, data, and images partly or wholly plagiarized or fabricated, often massaged by ghostwriters. What are they supposed to do? Go on strike? Some papers are endorsed by unrigorous reviewers solicited by the author. Such manuscripts threaten to corrupt the scientific literature, misleading readers, and potentially distorting systematic reviews. The recent advent of artificial intelligence tools, your chat GPT, I'm looking at you, has amplified the concern. To fight back, yes, there's fighting back. The International Association of Scientific, Technical, and Medical Publishers, STM, representing 120 publishers, is leading an effort called the Integrity Hub to develop new tools. They're not revealing much about the detection methods, to avoid tipping off paper mills. There's a bit of an arms race, says the Integrity Hub's product director. He did say one reliable sign of a fake is referencing many papers that have been retracted. 
Another involves manuscripts and reviews mailed from Internet addresses designed to look like those of legitimate institutions. Scientific papers, ladies and gentlemen. The uh, public, major publishers, 20 of them, are helping develop the Integrity Hub tools, and 10 of the publishers are expected to use a paper mill detector the group unveiled last month. The uh, group also expects to pilot a separate tool this year that detects manuscripts simultaneously sent to more than one journal, a practice considered unethical and a sign they may have come from paper mills. Such large-scale cooperation is meant to improve on what publishers were doing individually and to share tools across the industry. Some outsiders, outside the industry, that is, wonder whether journals will make good on promises to crack down publishers embracing gold open access. That's a system under which journals collect a fee from authors to make their papers immediately free to read when published, have a financial incentive to publish more, not fewer papers. They have a, quote, huge conflict of interest, unquote, regarding paper mills, says Jennifer Byrne of the University of Sydney. She has studied how paper mills have doctored cancer genetics data. The publisher parish pressure that institutions put on scientists is also an obstacle. We want to think about engaging with institutions on how to take away perhaps some of the incentives which can have these detrimental effects, says one of the uh, people trying to prevent paper mills from uh, having their stuff published. Those publisher parish pressures can push clinicians without research experience to turn to paper mills, which is why hospital affiliations can be a red flag. Is nothing sacred? Answer, no. And now, news of the warm, won't you? Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. Sure we can. Um, University of Toronto study, that's in uh, Canada, and should be pronounced Toronto, finds that climate change is causing a commercially significant marine crab, don't get carried away there, crab, to lose its sense of smell. That could partially explain why their populations are thinning. You know, nothing to smell? Get out of here. The research was done on Dungeness crabs. Mm-mm. Found that ocean acidification causes them to physically sniff less, which impacts their ability to detect food orders, <laughs> odors, and orders, and even decreases activity in the sensory nerves responsible for smell itself. Quote, this is the first study to look at the physiological effects of ocean acidification on the sense of smell in crabs, says Cosimo Porteus, an assistant professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at University of Toronto, author of the study, co-author of the study. Ocean acidification is a result of the Earth's oceans becoming more acidic due to absorbing increasing amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere. It's a direct consequence of burning fossil fuels and carbon pollution. Several studies have shown it's having an effect, an impact even, on the behavior of marine wildlife. 
Dungeness crabs, in case you don't know, are an economically important species found along the Pacific coast, from California to Alaska. They're one of the most popular crabs to eat. I can vouch for that. Their fishery was valued at more than $250 million way back in 2019. They have poor vision, like most crabs, so their sense of smell is crucial in finding food, as well as mates, suitable habitats, and avoiding predators. They sniff through a process known as flicking, where they flick small antennae through the water to detect odors. In those uh, small antennae are tiny neurons which send electrical signals to the brain. That's how a crab works. That's how they do it. Researchers discovered two things when the crabs were exposed to ocean acidification. They were flicking less, and their sensory neurons were 50% less responsive to odors. Crabs increase their flicking rate when they detect an odor they're interested in, but in crabs that were exposed to ocean acidification, the odor had to be 10 times more consecrated, concentrated before we saw an increase in flicking, says the researcher. There are a few potential reasons why ocean acidification impacts the sense of smell in crabs. Porteous points to other research done at the University of Hull in England that showed acidification of oceans disrupts odor molecules, which can impact how they bind to smell receptors in marine animals such as crabs. For this particular study, published in Global Change Biology, the researchers were able to test the electrical activity in the crabs' sensory neurons to determine they were less responsive to odors. They also had fewer receptors amid their sensory neurons, and the neurons were physically shrinking by as much as 25% in volume. These are active cells, says Porteus, and if they aren't detecting odors as much, they might be shrinking to conserve energy. It's like a muscle that shrinks if you don't use it, unquote. Reduced food detection could have implications for other economically important species. Your Alaskan king and snow crabs, their sense of smell functions the same way. Losing their sense of smell seems to be climate-related. This might partially explain some of the decline in their numbers, says Porteus. If crabs are having trouble finding food, she says, females, it stands to reason females, won't have as much energy to produce eggs. And there go breakfasts. No, not those kind of eggs. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Got a small day tomorrow A small day tomorrow I don't have to use my hand I've got a small day tomorrow I can sleep the day away and it won't cause too much sorrow Not tomorrow 
So tonight, this mouse will play. She's got a small day tomorrow. Now all those big wheels with all of their big deals, they are gonna need their sleep. But I'm a dropout. I can borrow until the day after tomorrow. We can swing till broad daylight. We've got a small day tomorrow. Now all you big wheels with all of your big deals. You are gonna need your sleep, but I'm a dropout, and I would rather cop out than run with all the sheep. Honey, child, tonight is the night. There's a car I can borrow until the day after tomorrow. We can swing right out of sight. We've got a big night and a small day tomorrow. Now, news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Eversall III. This from Agence France Presse. Two Japanese businessmen were handed suspended prison sentences this week in the latest convictions in a bribery scandal surrounding the Tokyo Olympics. Corruption allegations have spiraled in the aftermath of the Games, implicating major companies and damaging Japan's bid to host the 2030 Winter Olympics in Sapporo. Shigeharu Hisamatsu, a 64-year-old former executive at advertising firm ADK Holdings, got a sentence of 18 months, suspended for three years. His former assistant, 61-year-old Toshiaki Tada, was given a sentence of one year, also suspended for three. The pair didn't contest charges during their first hearing in March that they bribed a Tokyo Olympics committee member 
According to a local media source, the pair were arrested along with another official in October last year. Local media reported that uh, Shinichi Ueno admitted in a court hearing in February he paid over $100,000 to Haruyuki Takahashi, who's facing several separate bribery charges and has reportedly pleaded not guilty. Last month, the former chairman of a high street business suit retailer and sponsor of the Tokyo Games became the first person to be convicted in the bribery scandal. Hironori Aoki, 84-year-old head of Aoki Holdings, received a suspended prison sentence of two and a half years. Other parties involved in bribery allegations, including a major publishing firm and a merchandise company licensed to sell soft toys of the game's mascots. As investigations continue, the country's Olympics chief warned last month Japan could push its Winter Olympics bid back four years to 2034 when memories will have faded. And iconic French film star Brigitte Bardot has claimed Paris should not host next year's Olympic and Paralympic Games due to an objection to animals being used for sport. Bardot, president of an animal protection organization named after her, claims it's madness for Paris to stage the Games. In addition to potential animal rights abuses, she's concerned that the violent scenes at last year's UEFA Champions League final around Paris, venue the uh, Stade de France, that's going to be Paris's, one of Paris's Olympic venues next year, show the city's not ready. The first thing Paris should have done was to refuse the Olympic Games, says the 88-year-old Bardot. It's an additional madness which comes at a crucial moment when Paris is disfigured, when the debt which falls to us is abysmal, when the unleashed violence is not controlled, when the dramatic events which have occurred at the Stade de France still have not been settled. If you want, this is a quote from Brigitte Bardot, quote, if you want to fart higher than your ass, you risk ending up in insurmountable rubble. As for animals and horses in particular, they will once again be the first victims of this relentless desire to appear. The uh, use of animals in sport came uh, into the spotlight at the 2021 Olympic Games in Tokyo when a German trainer was set home after hitting a horse. Saint Boy. Yes, it's the Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one every day. You probably know by now, ladies and gentlemen, that the Writers Guild of America, which represents motion picture and television writers, and some others too, um, has called a strike against the motion picture and television industries. Um, Just finished the second week of the strike. A lot of picketing at studio locations in New York and Los Angeles. And um, it's an interesting, (laughs) to put it mildly, time for this to happen. Now, of course, nobody chooses when to strike. The uh, contracts expire when they expire, and that's sort of a given. But in the television business particularly, it's a weird time. Um, Over the last few years since uh, Netflix 
stopped being a DVD by mail company and started being a streaming television and movie company, um, Netflix has spent an enormous amount of money to create new original programming for its uh, customers uh, and other streaming services, your, um, oh, I don't know, your Peacock, your uh, Paramount Plus, your Everything Plus, your Apple Plus, your Minus Plus. Uh, they've all been spending like drunken sailors to create original programming and, and sign very lucrative deals with uh, writers and artists and directors and so forth. And that ended, started to end last year, late last year, when uh, all these companies realized they were spending too much money uh, and started cutting back and firing people or laying, sorry, laying them off. And now that's the time when the Writers Guild comes and says, no, you got to pay us more. you got to give us uh, what we were getting in residuals from television networks in the past before the whole streaming thing. And the streamers are going, too bad, too late. So it's, um, from that point of view, it bids fair to be a long strike. And other people are uh, making similar observations. Both sides are declaring, using the adjective existential to describe their situation at this moment in time. And um, that itself seems to uh, foretell a long strike. A lot of uh, supporters from other industries, uh, sorry, other walks of life in the uh, show business thing, uh, which may or may not help the writers. But I'll tell you one thing that certainly could help the Guild, and that's an anthem. When a cop who plays it by the book Gets teamed up with a streetwise smart-ass kid And he flips his lid We write what he did When the dad and mom of a cute black kid Both die, she's adopted by a cute white nun He's the sister's son We write what he done We face the empty page Our world is just a stage We write the stuff We fill your heart with daily dreams We make a star be what he seems And when the longest day is over And the shortest day begins And stirring words are spoken Over horns and violins When too much entertainment's not enough We When a blow-off 
producer says our outline about Nixon should be a treatment about Taft. We men are craft. We write the draft. Directors' names you know, but ours just come and go. We write the stuff. Speak our minds. We write this stuff. We sit all day on our behinds. And when the longest day is over, or the shortest day begins, and stirring words are spoken over horns and violins, when too much entertainment's not enough. News of our friend the Adam. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Safe, cheap, too cheap to meet. Cheap, safe, too safe to meet. Safe, safe, too safe to meet. Hey, remember the uh, nuclear plant in Ukraine? Remember Ukraine? Try that. Yes, there is a nuclear plant. I think it's Europe's largest. It's called Zaporizhia. Russia now, according to the AP, plans to relocate about 2,700 Ukrainian staff from that plant. That's according to Ukraine's atomic energy company. And it warns of a potential, quote, catastrophic lack of qualified personnel at the Zaporizhia facility in Russian-occupied southern Ukraine. This, according to the AP, workers who signed employment contracts with Russia's nuclear agency Rosatom following Moscow's capture of the plant early in the war are supposed to be taken to Russia along with their families. That's from uh, the Ukrainian nuclear company Energoatom in a telegram post this week. The company didn't specify whether the employees would be forcibly moved out of the plant nor was it immediately possible to verify whether that is, in fact, Moscow's plan. Removing staff would, quote, exacerbate the already extremely urgent issue of staff shortages, says Energoatom, the Ukrainian company. The Moscow-installed governor of the region ordered civilian evacuations from the area last week, including from a nearby city where most plant workers live. The full scope of the evacuation order wasn't clear. Russian forces seized Zaporizhzhia, the plant, after Putin ordered the invasion of Ukraine last year. Russian occupiers left the staff in place, the Ukrainian staff, to keep the plant running, but the exact workers' number currently at the plant isn't known. Fighting near the plant has fueled fears of a potential catastrophic incident like the one at Chernobyl in northern Ukraine in uh, 1986. 
That, of course, was the world's worst nuclear accident to date. Zaporizhia is one of the 10 biggest nuclear plants in the world. Its six reactors have been shut down for months. It still needs power and qualified staff to operate crucial cooling systems, you know, to keep the, uh, keep the nuclear fuel from overheating, or the staff for that matter, and uh, needs staff to run other safety features as well. Soon after Russian troops overran the plant, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, warned that low staffing levels, quote, seriously compromised, unquote, one of the fundamental factors in nuclear safety and security, which is that operating staff have to be able to fulfill their safety and security duties and have the capacity to make decisions free of undue pressure, like you'd be under if you were working for Russian troops, I guess. The IAEA has deployed a handful of staff at Zaporizhia in an effort to ensure its safety. The Kremlin-installed authorities in the region are accelerating their push to relocate local residents, including families of workers at the plant, due to the expected Ukrainian counter-offensive coming soon. And officials from Japan and South Korea eyed a potential visit by South Korean experts to Fook before it begins the controversial release of treated but radioactive water into the ocean. It's one of the two major sticking points between the sides that are quickly thawing long, strained ties between Japan and South Korea. Japanese government was expected to give updates on the status of the tsunami-wracked Fook plant which is preparing for a release of the water, saying it's an unavoidable step to move its decommissioning process forward. The government and TEPCO, the plant's operators, say the release will begin between spring and summer, like now, maybe, and take decades to finish. It's a lot of water. The uh, water was used to cool the three damaged reactor cores. They're highly radioactive. It leaked into the basements of the reactor buildings, did the water, and was collected, treated, and stored in about a 1,000 tanks that now cover much of the facility. Government and TEPCO say the tanks must be removed so that facilities can be built for the plant's decommissioning while minimizing risks of leaks. The tanks are expected to reach their capacity of 1.37 million tons of water next year. The uh, Japanese Prime Minister announced that Japan will receive a team of experts from South Korea later this month to address that country's concerns about the radioactive water. It contains tritium, a radioactive form of hydrogen. Uh, Seoul wants to send some 20 government experts to visit Fook. Japan is expected to give them a tour, not a safety inspection of the plant. The uh, visit, according to Japanese government, will not affect the planned release of the water or its timing. Japan continues to give explanations about safety measures to gain understanding. Japanese officials say the water will be safely filtered to below releasable levels by international standards and further diluted by large amounts of seawater before release, making it unharmful to human health or marine life, although that hasn't convinced local fishing communities that are concerned about safety and reputational 
damage. Neighboring countries, including South Korea, China, and the Pacific Island nations, have also raised safety concerns. Some scientists say the impact of long-term low-dose exposure to tritium and other radionuclides on the environment and human health is still unknown, and the release should be delayed. There have been historical disputes between Tokyo and Seoul, most recently over compensation of wartime Korean forced laborers during Japan's colonization of the Korean Peninsula during the first half of the 20th century. Their relationship has thawed rapidly when uh, the South Korean government in March announced a local fund to compensate some of those former laborers. And... Dayline Albuquerque, U.S. nuclear regulators have licensed a multi-billion dollar complex to temporarily store tons of spent fuel in New Mexico from commercial nuclear power plants around the United States. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission decided that this week, saying the proposed project in southeastern New Mexico could go forward. The governor of the state and the state's congressional delegation oppose locating the storage complex in the state. They fear New Mexico will become the nation's dumping ground for spent nuclear fuel, given the fact the federal government has no permanent solution for the waste piling up at commercial reactors around the country. New Mexico approved legislation a couple months ago aimed at stopping the project. The fight is expected to end up where else? In court. The state lawmakers saying their new law requires Holtec International, the energy company that wants to build the facility, to acquire construction permits from the state, which might not happen. New Jersey-based Holtec has argued New Mexico measure requiring consent is preempted by federal law, and a court fight would only delay the economic boon that would come from building the complex. Nuclear reactors across the country produce more than 2,000 metric tons of radioactive waste a year, according to the Department of Energy. Most of it remains at the sites that produce it because there's nowhere else to put it. News of our friend, the Atom. And now, the Apologies of the Week. We're so sorry. ESPN Sports Center anchor John Anderson apologized this week to Zach Whitecloud, a First Nation member in Canada, this week after comparing the Vegas Golden Knights defenseman's last name to toilet paper the previous night. Whitecloud told reporters in Edmonton, Alberta, he spoke with Anderson on Tuesday morning. I think it was an attempt at humor that came out as being obviously insensitive. And he acknowledges that, White Cloud said. He understands it was wrong to say. I wanted to make sure he knew that I accepted his apology. People make mistakes, and this is a scenario where not just John, but everyone can learn from and move forward in a positive direction and try to be better for. What kind of name is White Cloud? Anderson asked while he was reciting the highlights of the game. A great name if you're a toilet paper he said on the air. The former Archbishop of York has rejected the findings of a review which found he failed to act on a victim's disclosure of child sex abuse. The Church of England has apologized to Matthew Ineson, 
who was age 16 when he was abused in the 1980s, most painful place to be abused, in Bradford. His abuser, the Reverend Trevor Devamanikin, killed himself before he was scheduled to appear in court. The Independent Review said that the uh, former Archbishop of York, Lord Sentamu, should have sought advice when the victim made his disclosure. Devamanikam was charged with six serious sexual offenses in May of 2017. He was found dead at his home the day before he was due to appear in court. There's a thing called timing. Deadline Madrid, the organizers of a women's running race in Spain, apologized this week after the winner was offered a food processor to take home. That sparked accusations of sexism. The four, more than four-mile Carrera de la Mujer, women's race, issued a statement on Twitter saying it hadn't considered the kitchen appliance, donated by a sponsor, would have sexist implications. We apologize, but we consider this a product with no sexist character and ideal for any athlete who wants to improve their nutritional habits, the statement said. We regret if any woman felt offended. The organizers promised to take measures to avoid similar incidents in the future. Get a better sponsor, I'd say. Dateline Allen, Texas. The Allen Fairview Chamber of Commerce has issued an apology on social media for a post that was shared to their Facebook page last week. The chamber had published on Sunday morning a post that warmly welcomed the group, quote, pulling triggers, pulling corks to its ranks the morning after that deadly mass shooting within the Allen Premium Outlets Mall. After sharp criticism for the posting, the chamber took down the post and later published an apology. In the apology, the chamber said that while scheduling posts ahead of time is standard practice for its social media policy, this particular post was deleted because it was, quote, insensitive and should not have been published, unquote, in the immediate wake of the shooting, where at least nine died and several others were injured. These senseless acts of violence have no place in any community, and deepest condolences are with the victims, their families, and the community of Allen, wrote the chamber. According to its website, pulling triggers and pulling corks is a group for people that enjoy learning about firearms and drinks like wine and whiskey. Pulling triggers and pulling corks is the melding of two amazing worlds that can be enjoyed individually or combined during one event, but never at the same time. The website cautions. Another Madrid apology this week. The Madrid Open apologized for not allowing the women's doubles players to address the crowd after the awards ceremony. After last weekend's final, the finalists of the men's doubles and men's and women's singles were given the chance to talk to spectators following their matches. Winners Victoria Azarenka and Beatriz Haddad Maya and losing finalists Coco Goff and Jessica Pegula were oddly denied that customary honor after Sunday's final. The circumstance was criticized by the players and bashed by fans on social media, where all the good bashing happens. Four days after the incident, tournament CEO Gerard Sobanian said it would never happen again.
Quote, we offer our sincerest apologies to all the players and fans who expected more from the Madrid Open, he was quoted as saying on the tournament's Twitter account, not giving a chance to our finalists of women's doubles to speak to fans after the match, was unacceptable. Unquote. Tarte is a um, maker of cosmetics, Tarte with an E, and it's in the process of reviewing its creator program to make changes for diversity and inclusion, says the brand's CEO, Maureen Kelly, in a new TikTok video. I take full, quote, I take full responsibility for a TikTok video that I posted responding to claims by a respected and valued Tarte creator. Kelly said in a video released this week, she was referring to her initial response to a controversy that ensued over the past week after a black influencer spoke out about canceling participation in a Tarte brand trip, stating she'd been treated like a second-tier person when the invitations were sent out. Quote, My choosing a light-hearted approach to a topic that deserved a serious response was definitely a wrong approach. I should have used this as an opportunity to address the unequal treatment of black creators within beauty creator programs. My post came across as me not taking the issue seriously, and I'm really sorry for that, said Kelly. The uh, post that Kelly apologized for was a Get Ready With Me style TikTok video posted earlier in the month in which she responded to criticisms of treatment over treatment of BIPOC influencers on two recent Tarte trips. This came after influencer Bria Jones stated in a viral TikTok video beginning of the month that she uh, had decided not to attend the brand's trip to the Formula One races in Miami, saying that being excluded from the main F1 race day made it feel like she was being ranked, and the trip felt like a sorority situation. Kelly announced that starting now, the brand is reviewing its creator program to make sure it is inclusive and equitable while updating it regularly to make sure we reflect changes that happen within the beauty influence market. We take immediate action whenever we find inequalities or errors within our program, she said. We're also going to be more transparent about how we work with our creators, including how we choose them. I acknowledge we have fallen short in issues of diversity, inclusion, and equity in the past. Deadline Atlanta, an incoming University of Georgia football player who made racially insensitive remarks during a live stream during the NFL draft, has publicly apologized. Jamal Jarrett is a four-star recruit. He committed to pay, play for the Georgia Bulldogs next year. He was live streaming on his Instagram when the Falcons... Number eight pick was announced. Jarrett was with his teammates at the time as they waited for a defensive lineman to be drafted. Jarrett apparently wanted Carter, Jalen Carter, to be picked by the Falcons. On Wednesday night, Jarrett posted an apology on social media. He says he feels ashamed that his actions hurt those in the Asian-American Pacific Islander community, and he truly apologizes. He also said he didn't mean any hate or harm towards anyone. He also says he has learned more about the AAPI community and the increased hate crimes that have been directed towards members of the community 
Over the past several days, Jarrett says he's come to understand more clearly where I messed up and why this behavior was wrong. He also says in his apology he wants to grow from the situation and make a more positive impact in the community by playing football, apparently. Coinbase Chief Legal Officer Paul Gruwal apologized to investors in the obscure novelty cryptocurrency Pepe Coin this week. The company drew outrage and boycott threats for documenting how the coin's namesake, the cartoon meme Pepe the Frog, has been used as an alt-right hate symbol. A Coinbase newsletter discussed a recent surge of interest in meme coins like Pepe Coin and pointed out that the Pepe meme has been co-opted as a hate symbol by alt-right groups. Twitter users and Pepe Coin investors took to Twitter using the hashtag Delete Coinbase, with more than 180,000 tweets there, calling for a boycott of Coinbase and claiming Pepe isn't exclusively used toward racist ends, despite its frequent appearances in far-right imagery. One day later, Gruel, the Coinbase chief legal officer, tweeted that Coinbase did not provide the whole picture of the history of the meme and apologized for the overview of the meme coin. The Coinbase newsletter now includes an editor's note apologizing. And ESPN analyst Stephen A. Smith is walking back his words after a controversial take on Anthony Davis's head injury in a basketball game Wednesday night. Smith repeatedly mocked the idea that Davis could have a concussion after the Lakers' center left that loss to the Warriors with a head injury. I thought the NFL season was over, Smith said, adding, I ain't seen nothing yesterday that made me say concussion. Concussion. Davis took a hit to the head from Moyers' big man Kevin Looney, was taken back to the locker room in a wheelchair. A wheelchair? Really? That's where we are? Smith asked. Looney appeared to make contact with the side of Davis's face rather than striking him directly in the forehead but the Lakers' center was wobbly in the minutes after the hit. Hours later, Smith tweeted out a clarification. Quote, I was in no way minimizing the seriousness of a concussion. I was questioning whether Anthony Davis really had one, Smith said, adding, bottom line, it was wrong for me to do. Period. My bad. Apparently, Davis did not suffer a concussion. The apologies of the wake, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's edition of the show. Back next week, same time on this uh, same radio station. Remember radio? And uh, on your audio device of choice, whenever you want it. And it would be just like not taking AM radios out of cars. Because you know that emergency information that you might need someday. If you would agree to join with me then, would you? All righty, thank you very much. Uh huh. A tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego desk. To Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans. And to Pam Halstead for aid with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, a chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. Really? And the uh, playlist of the music heard here on, as well as a lot of stuff to watch and listen to and read and forget, all at harryshearer.com. And I'm stubbornly remaining on Twitter, for the moment, at the Harry Shearer. show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from the Crescent City.